This is episode 514 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. The book of Acts is literally God's training manual for his church. And as such, then God must want our lives and his church to resemble the early church he reveals in the book of Acts. And this church was commanded by Jesus to declare war on the kingdom of Satan and to be involved in active combat just like Jesus was when he was here on earth with the power of darkness. I know, war doesn't sound too appealing or something we look forward to. After all, war involves training and difficulties and fighting and weariness, injury, and often casualties. Yet unfortunately, many of us today view the Christian life as like a trip to Disney World and not as a battle between light and darkness. And I say this to our collective shame. But the other thing we miss is the power revealed in the book of Acts. It was the promise of Jesus to his church that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them. You know, the same Holy Spirit that lives dormant in most of our lives today. But that needs to change, and it will. So join us as we begin to look at the book of Acts with new eyes and pray for an awakening of the power of the Holy Spirit to turn our world upside down as they did in the early church. And rest assured, it should be a wild ride as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. As we're beginning looking at the book of Acts, I uh, want you to realize that it's not just an academic book that kind of tells us about the history of the early church. We can read about it and, oh, that's great. You know, there's, oh, that's Paul where he got bit by that serpent and threw it in the fire and everybody thought he was going to die, but he didn't. Or, oh, it's the story of the Damascus Road or or his trial before Agrippa and Festus. and, And all that is interesting. But that's not what we're talking about. When we look at the book of Acts, it really is God's training manual for his church. This is how church is to function. This is how Christians are supposed to live. We've been talking about this higher Christian life. And again, it's a higher is a relative phrase. What we're looking at in the book of Acts are the first Christians living their Christian life. That's how it's supposed to be done. That's the prototype. That's, That's God's training manual for us. This is what church looks like in a very hostile environment. If you're not living in that hostile environment, you can still learn from what they're going through. It'd be better for you. You'd have more freedom to to worship him. Then when we compare our lives to the example we have in the book of Acts and we find ourselves lacking, then what we want to strive for is what we call the higher Christian life, which is really getting back to the origin, getting back to what it looks like in the book of Acts. And so as I begin looking at this, I shared this with you about a month ago, with new eyes, everything changes. Everything changes. And I guess the most I can do today is to kind of give you a a hint of some of the stuff we're going to be looking at. And one of the reasons why many people are drawn to the book of Acts or convicted by the book of Acts or really don't want to read the book of Acts is because many Christians are not satisfied with Christianity today. I've shared that schematic with you 500 times. You know, you pick the point in time in your life when you were closest to the Lord, that never been closer to him than then, whether it's today or the day you got saved or sometime in between. I remember that experience. I remember what it was like. And we'll call that a 10 or a 100. It doesn't matter. 
Then we compare our life to that today. And then it gives us a scale of where we are, not where we want to go, but where we are in relationship to where we have already been. And for most believers, for most of us in here, if I asked everybody honestly, we're less than a 10. We're less spiritually than where we have already been. We're not forging new territory with them. We just haven't recaptured the ground we've lost. And so we look at Christianity and we go, I'm tired of, I'm, I'm tired of it just like it always is. I'm tired of the status quo. I mean, salvation is wonderful. I love salvation. It's fantastic. Jesus is preparing this place for me in heaven, and someday he'll come to receive me unto himself, because he says that in John 14, and it's going to be incredible, and there's going to be the pearly gates and all the imagery we have, and the streets of gold, and we're going to meet friends and neighbors, and it'll be this joyous time. Salvation is wonderful. Sanctification is painful. Sanctification is hard. Sanctification is difficult. Because now I'm looking forward to the sweet by and by, but living in the everyday grind of my fallen flesh and my semi-redeemed nature and the world in which we live, living Christ-like is extremely difficult. And then somebody, some pastor like me, would have the audacity to talk about John 10.10, that is Jesus' desire for us to live an abundant life. And when we read that, that just gets frustrating. My life's not abundant. My life is a struggle and it's up and down and up and down and more downs and up and I can't figure out what the problem is. And and so therefore I try really hard and nothing happens. So now I'm going to quit. I'm satisfied being a five or a six or a seven to be able to you know, satisfy my fleshly cravings to make me feel good about something because this life with Christ, for some reason, ain't cutting it, at least not the way it was sold to us. Many believers are like that. Many of you may be like that. I have been like that for much of my Christian life. And then we get to the book of Acts and we look at a passage like Acts 1.8, where he talks about, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be or become my witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And we, okay, I, I, I read that, and that's a nice little deal. Oh, it's like concentric circles. I'll teach a Sunday school class. I'll get a map of the Middle East, and I'll say Jerusalem, an outlining area of Judea, then Samaria, then the uttermost parts of the world. And we can talk about world missions, and we can feel good about that kind of stuff. And we miss, we miss what this passage is all about. You shall be my witnesses in Gastonia and in Gaston County and in North Carolina, and the United States, and the rest of the world. Okay, somebody will do that, but not me, because I'm content because of my maybe lack of experiencing this power that he's talking about. I'm content to live in my little huddle, my own little family, my own little church. The world is out there. I've erected these mighty walls. And actually, Jesus said that I've got these walls built up and this massive door keeping the world out. Jesus said that the gates of hell shall not prevail against me and my little family, my little church, my little cocoon. No, no, it's, it's not the gates of your cocoon. It's the gates of hell whose locked itself up against the 
power of the church coming in to proclaim light in darkness. But we've twisted that to somehow make us feel comfortable. And then when we look at the book of Acts, we miss the whole part about his kingdom. I, you know, I don't like to talk about kingdoms because we don't like to have kings. I don't even know what a king is. And I know that there's a kingdom parables, and I know Jesus preached about the kingdom, but I don't really understand what a king is. Well, a king has dominion over a certain set of properties, and a king's rule is sovereign, and a king has soldiers and servants to protect his kingdom, to push his kingdom on. What a king says is what goes, and if you disobey the king, there are dire consequences for that, even death. And so Jesus has a kingdom, and then Satan has a kingdom. But we understand that academically, but don't really realize that that's what the entire book is all about. In the book of Acts, Jesus is declaring war on Satan and his kingdom of darkness. Uh, what, 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 no, um, war, like, like I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to declare war. I want to sing songs like we did today about how beautiful Jesus is and how loving Jesus is and how you know, uh, he, he takes care of me and my problems and, and it's all about me. War means that I actually have to go out there and confront the enemy and I may get injured and I may have to put on spiritual armor. I can't do the things that I want to do because I'm enlisted in the service like you are, Timmy, going not here because he's training for that. I I don't want that. That's not the Christianity that was sold to me. The Christianity sold to me was my little huddle, my little lean-to, I'm okay, just leave me alone. Jesus never intended it to be that way. And the book of Acts is the declaration of war. But we miss it when we study the book of Acts. Think about it. Jesus said, I am going to give you Power. For what? For what did we need power for? To prepare sermons? You can do that in the flesh. To come to church? Don't need your power to do that. He's going to give you supernatural power, the Holy Spirit living within you. He's that, that's what makes the church the church. I'm going to infuse the church with this power that the gates of hell can't prevail against, that no weapon formed against it will prevail. This power that, that transcends everything. Greater is he living in you with this power than anything the enemy can throw at us. He empowers us for war, and we don't even own a sword. We haven't trained. We don't care because we're too busy being entangled with the world right now. When we read the book of Acts, we miss that. But there are other things that we miss. It's phenomenal. Two aspects of the book of Acts. You can, you can cut a, the book of Acts into two major themes. Here's theme one. We missed the power part. The power part. Yeah, there's power. Well, what kind of power? Well, there's healing power. There's raising from the dead power. There's pro prophetic power. There's all the kind of power that we're afraid of. Well, that doesn't really exist today because we haven't experienced it. And the group we hang around hasn't experienced. So therefore, God led us all the way to the brook 
parched as we are for a movement of him, but wouldn't let us drink because somehow this was only for them. Now, power comes for a reason. And the reason is point two. There's this evangelical missionary zeal. These people lived for telling other people about Jesus. And many of us had never done that. Never. I mean, that's not my job. My job's not to tell other people about Jesus. Well, what is your job? Well, just to live my best life now? No. Job is to make disciples of all nations. Job is to be witnesses and all through the world. The job is to take your stand against the power of darkness, which is trying to rob you, your children and your grandchildren, of their eternal salvation. Or even if they're saved, the joy in their spiritual life. If you take the book of Acts as this training manual, you will find that the two major elements that flow through here are rapid, unbelievable growth of the church in a very hostile environment and this power manifested in such a way that it affirmed the disciples and let the entire world know there's something going on here more than just uh, going to church, getting a seminary degree, reading a devotional, maybe, and you know, tithing 6% of your income or something of that nature, that there's something bigger here than that. So let me just take these two and amplify them for you. Got to go through this really quickly because I just want you to get kind of a macro view of this. But before we begin, I want you to know if you took the New Testament and divided it up, you would find 50%, 56% of the New Testament is based on just foundation. It is Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. It basically lays out for us the foundation of our faith and how the early church took that foundation of our faith and turned the world upside down in one generation. Under occupation, under Jewish, under Roman occupation, and under Jewish oppression. Turn the world upside down. You'll find that there's 38% of our New Testament is based on a teaching of how you're to mature, mature in the faith. It's the epistles, how we have freedom, the book of Galatians, how we understand the sovereignty of God, the book of Ephesians, how we learn to live in the joy of the Lord, the book of Philippians, how, on and on and on. Most of the Bible is tied up with either uh, or the New Testament, tied up with the foundation of our faith or basically an application of that. And only 6% of our New Testament is prophetic, primarily the book of Revelation. And when we look at the New Testament and the growth of the church, it is it's mind-boggling. It begins, it begins with one man, John the Baptist. John the Baptist was called by God. He comes and he preaches this message about repentance because one coming is greater than him. as the actual Messiah that he's unworthy to even go down and untie his shoes. Jesus shows up. He's baptized. The skies open up. The Holy Spirit descends upon him. And all of a sudden now, the ministry focuses away from John the Baptist to one man, Jesus. And he goes around performing miracles and preaching a message about the kingdom, not about your best life now, not about how to get the right spouse, not about to know where God wants you to work, but about the kingdom. And after a while, he collected 12 men. And there was a, 
an entourage that followed him of unnamed people, a, a few women that we know about, and had 12 people. And so those 12 people, Jesus decided to invest his life, and they were common uh, men. Probably the most educated of the group was Judas, and there may be a message in that, but we're not going to preach that one today. Later on, we find that when he sends them out, he sends them out in a group of 70. So the 12 has grown to at least 70. He sends them out two by two. And here's what he says. I've been with you. I've shown you how it's supposed to be. I'm basically going to show you what it's like when I'm gone. I'm going to give you a precursor of the book of Acts. I'm going to take the spirit that's in me and give it to you temporarily, just like they did in the Old Testament. And I'm going to send you out and tell you to do things that you see me doing. Well, those gifts were just for the 12, not according to the 70. And they came back saying, even the demons were submitting to us in your name. Because there's a war going on. There's two kingdoms that are fighting here. And you and I are members of one of those kingdoms. When Jesus finally, Jesus finally is taken up into heaven, Acts chapter 2 begins with this prayer meeting they have, waiting on the Holy Spirit to come. And now the group of 12 has grown to 70 that we know about. That is now up to 120. It doesn't mean these are all the believers, but we do know that those are the 120 that were committed enough to stay however long it took in this upper room praying for the Holy Spirit to fall. Later on, we find out that Jesus actually appeared to over 500 people. Uh, we don't know if the 120 are included in that 500, but if they weren't, the biggest the church was at this time was 620 people. The Son of God, the Son of God, in everything that he can do, and all the miracles and raising Lazarus from the dead, and Lazarus walking around testifying about that, the Son of God collected at most 620 people. And he ascends into heaven, and he sends the promise, the comforter, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2. And it inhabits these just common people, just like you and I are. And he turns them into something they were not. Peter, who denied he even knew Jesus less than 45 days earlier, Peter stands up and preaches this message in Acts chapter 2, 157 words that's recorded of that, and now the church grew to 3,000. And then we find two chapters later, the church is now 5,000, not just people, but 5,000 men. When you count women and children, this could be 10,000, 12,000, 15,000. And in one generation, it's estimated by the close of the book of Acts that 100,000 Jews believed, not counting the Gentiles. And when you factor in the Gentiles, there's no way to know how big this number is. This is explosive growth. Again, these are Jews who believe, which means that you have to deny everything that makes you who you are that you woke up in the morning and uh, you realized that you were a Jew and you had to keep the laws and you were circumcised on the eighth day and you had these promises and your whole life was defined by pleasing this horrible taskmaster by keeping all these earthly laws. And the fact is you had to actually, that the Messiah was coming, but now you had to turn around and believe that the Messiah did come, but the Messiah is not here anymore and he didn't set up an earthly kingdom. Instead, it's a spiritual kingdom. Your friends denied you. You probably 
probably lost your job. It was a terrible cost that you paid, and yet 100,000 of them believed. How is that possible? How is that possible? It's because of the theme we find in the book of Acts. The verse that basically gives the book its marching orders, and that's in Acts 1.8. And I want, you to, I want you to slow down, and we're just going to read this together. But you shall receive. That's exactly, that's exactly what salvation is, by the way. It's not that you give something. The most you do is surrender yourself to him. But what makes you saved is the fact that you receive something from him. What do you receive? You receive eternal life. You receive salvation. You receive God himself residing in you. The infinite, eternal God, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, chooses not to stay in some tabernacle in Clover where we have to travel to just to, to be with him, but we can't go in there because we're not priests. We have to wait till somebody comes out and tells us what God said, like the Old Testament motif, but instead lives in us. So much so what we're receiving. Jesus said, it's better for you that I go to heaven because I will send you the one that you will receive. And with God living in you comes power. Not lethargy, not apathy, not weaniness, but power. Good night, this is God. This is parting of the Red Sea, God. This is destruction of Jericho by just walking around and blowing trumpets, God. This is God Almighty living in you. And he doesn't come with platitudes. He always comes in power. And you shall receive that power. When? When God has come upon you. We see this in Acts chapter 2. It happened to you the moment you got saved. When you asked the Lord Jesus into your life, the the gift that you were given, this deposit guarantee of your future inheritance to come, according to Ephesians, is the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit in you, listen carefully, you are not saved. You adhere to a religion, but if the Holy Spirit is not in you, you are not saved. He brings gifts. He prays for you when you don't even know how to pray. He's closer to you than a brother. And he is the one that manifests everything on this earth. Jesus is ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. But it's the Holy Spirit who dwells now. The power that brings your lost ones to faith is the Holy Spirit. The power that raises up sick people is the Holy Spirit. When we pray, Lord, you know, this person's got a really bad disease, and I'm praying that you'll heal her. The Lord that we're praying to is the Holy Spirit that's here with us. And you will receive, we have received, Dudamas explosive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon us. Well, what are we supposed to do? Well, I think we're supposed to take that power on a table at home so nobody can see and we'll close the blinds and we'll put it up under a bushel like a light so nobody will know we've got it because we don't want them to know because if they do, the power of darkness will try to extinguish our light. By the way, that's war between kingdoms. And, and, and we just, we want to be AWOL. That's all we've been taught. 
We do our thing, they do their thing. If they let us meet on Sunday, they can do whatever they want in Hollywood during the rest of the week. But they're not letting us do that anymore. They're coming after you, and they're coming after me. And it's time for us to, to live in the power that comes in our birthright. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall not live for you. You shall be my witnesses. You shall testify of me. That's our job. That's the number one thing we're supposed to do, and it's the one thing other than prayer that most Christians feel deficient about. Well, if I, if I share Jesus at work, I'm going to get in trouble. Absolutely, it's a war. If I share Jesus with my friends, some of them are going to uh, reject me. Yes, there's casualties in war, but you share Jesus with some of your friends and some of them come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been used by God to save them from all eternity. Every time someone is healed, every time someone is saved, every time someone is changed on the inside by the power of the Holy Spirit, it is sticking it in the face of Satan every single time. And you and I have all the power of the universe living in us to do that. So he told them, I want you to start right where you're at. Oh, that's the hardest. I think I'd rather go on a mission trip for 10 days, go to some African country and share Jesus really boldly with all these people. If they reject me, what do I care? But I'm supposed to do this at Thanksgiving, at Christmas, at, at work, with the people God has placed in my sphere of influence, my metron is the Greek word, sphere of influence, he brought them there for a reason, because they're in darkness and you're in light. I mean, what good are we if the calling and the purpose God placed on our life, we refuse to do because we're afraid it, they're gonna come after us? Do you know why we're afraid? Because we think we're at peace, we're at war. We've always been at war. You and I just haven't put on our uniforms. In Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, wherever God sends you, even to the ends of the earth. This is the theme of that. And when they believe this, these are, again, these, these early Christians, some of them didn't even speak the same language. They, they didn't have your Bibles. They didn't have... Christian TV or Christian movies or, or devotionals or go on Google and type in Christian. Again, all these websites and all, they didn't have any of that kind of stuff. They left their job, they left their families or maybe their jobs and families left them and they cling to a king and a kingdom empowered by something they had never experienced before. And they, in this hostile environment, where by the way, we share Jesus at work. The worst that can happen to you is you'll get fired. Well, you can get fired anyway if you don't take the vaccination, but you're gonna, you'll get fired. Worst that can happen. Them, the worst that can happen, they'd be killed. Killed. Their family be carted away and tortured. Horrible situations. And yet they kept sharing because they relied on this power. Watch this. Acts chapter 1. Verse 15, there's 120 in the upper room. Very next chapter, preacher, uh, Peter preaches this sermon. It's a pretty direct sermon. You know, who you killed, the son of glory. They cried out, what should we do? 3,000 added to the church. 
three, that's a mega church, by the way, in the middle of Jerusalem on a high Jewish holiday. 3,000 got saved at Pentecost. We find just a couple verses later that daily they're meeting in the temple and daily people are getting saved. I mean, we're fortunate in churches in America if people get saved once a year, twice a year. So we bring in an evangelist who preaches an evangelistic message to people who are already Christians. Nobody gets saved, so we switch it around and go, who wants to rededicate their life to Jesus because we need to get the altar full? So who wants to rededicate their life to Jesus? And people come down and pray, rededicate their life to Jesus. The evangelist goes on to another church and nothing changes. Nothing changes because we don't view ourselves as soldiers. Acts 4.4, now the 3,000 is turned into 5,000. 5,000 people without Bibles, without churches on every street corner, without Jesus lapel pins, without honk if you love Jesus bumper stickers, none of that stuff, without even the freedom we have to proclaim Jesus. They didn't have that freedom back then. They'd been flogged already. Pretty soon Stephen's going to be killed. People are going to lose their homes and be just driven away into foreign countries to take whatever menial job they had, yet they're, they're, they're key in life was not to support themselves, but to proclaim the gospel. Acts chapter 5, verse 14. The Bible doesn't even list the numbers anymore because they're growing so much. So we're going to go, multitudes are being saved. By the time we get to Acts 6, instead of saying people were added to the church, now that's changed to multiplication. And the number of the disciples were multiplying. It's growing exponentially. By the seventh verse of Acts chapter 6, religious leaders People committed to Judaism are now being converted. And now the Samaritans who hated the Jews, who hated the early Christians because they were all Jews, are now coming to Christ. By the time we get to Acts 18, a ruler of the synagogue is now getting uh, saved. It's kind of like if Billy Graham or Franklin Graham converted to Islam. What? What an incredible bonus for Islam. But that's what's happening here. By Acts 19, the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. And this is only the beginning. It's just a bird's, I haven't listed all of these, just a bird's eye view of what happened in the book of Acts. And remember, when these people got saved, it was a lot different than this. Well, everybody's head down and eyes closed. Don't look around, don't look around, because we, you know, we don't embarrass you about claiming Christ. And so if anybody would like to be saved, nobody's looking at you, just raise your hand. Just, just raise your hand. Oh, I see that hand. I see that hand. Okay. And really? Really? We're so embarrassed in a group of Christians to tell somebody we want to get saved, we have to do it that way? Not here. I mean, when these people came to Christ, it cost them something that you and I have never paid. Never paid. And look at the explosive growth. Well, how did that happen? Well, God did not rely on man's in ingenuity. He didn't rely on sermons and PowerPoints and dancers with ribbons and really pumped up music and stuff like that. No, he, he manifested his kingdom among people. Well, this is really God, because the Jews over there just put the law on me, and you're saying that you're different than them, and all of a sudden, God is moving in an incredible way. Remember Nicodemus? No one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. I recognize you, Jesus, not by your words, 
but by the power behind your words. Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, 3,000 people got saved through this miracle of tongues where they all heard the gospel message in their own dialect. By the time we get to Acts chapter 3, that led to this 5,000 men being saved, we find that the impetus of all of this is Peter and John healing a lame man at the temple gate, which ended up having both of them thrown in jail. Is it worth it? Well, not to us. I'll lose my job. I don't have uh, attorney fees to pay for that. God can't do today what he did back then. By Acts chapter 5, people are getting healed and demons were being cast out when Peter's shadow passed over them. Well, sounds like something that happens in a Benny Hinn, you know, crusade. No, no, this is real what's happening here. Acts chapter 8, the gospel broke through to Samaritans. Read it because of the miracles that were done through Philip. They're unnamed but it says that there were miracles that are done. Acts chapter 9, many people believe because Peter raised Dorcas from the dead. Acts chapter 13, a proconsul believed when Paul had this power encounter with this demonic soothsayer and blinded him. Do you remember that? And it's so amazing if you read the account. The, it says that when Paul spoke that to him, his eyesight became like a mist, slowly getting dark, and then darkened completely. How did anybody know that unless this man testified of that? Which means he probably got saved because of this. Do you have the boldness to say that to somebody? Silver or gold I don't have, but what I do have, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. Oh no, because if he doesn't rise and walk, it looks bad on me. Always about us. Acts 19, the word of the Lord spread through Ephesus when demons were cast out through handkerchiefs blessed by Paul. Because Paul couldn't be at all places at all times. And, and so when he would be teaching and had these handkerchiefs, and well, it's amazing the stuff that went on. None of these people got saved because of the miracles. They got saved because they're, like we did, because they placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And faith alone is what saved them, not their healing. Yet these signs and wonders that pointed to Christ are the same signs and wonders I think the Lord wants to utilize today because we are at war, war. One of the other things that we miss a lot is this idea of a kingdom. I know Jesus said, oh, my kingdom's not of this world, so therefore I don't need to worry about it. Because I'm building my own kingdom. I'm building my own business. I'm building my own conglomerate. I'm, I'm making my own way in the world. I'm, I've got my own little kingdom I'm, I'm dealing with here. And of course, it's this kingdom of Satan or, or however that's about. But you know what? If I don't bother it, it'll leave me alone. But this kingdom of God, since it's out there somewhere, I don't even think about it. And we miss, we miss the whole point of the book of Acts. Why don't you... Um, take a little survey of the gospel accounts and you will find that the theme Jesus preached on more than anything was about the kingdom. The kingdom, something we never talk about in church. Never. The kingdom. Watch this. First, the message of John the Baptist, who now comes as the forerunner of Jesus Christ. We find this early in the book of Matthew, Matthew 3. And here's what he says. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, 
If you'll trust Jesus with everything, he will give you your best life now. He will save you and redeem you and take you up to heaven. He'll stick with you closer than a brother. He will love you. No, that's what we talk about. John the Baptist said this, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus now comes. Jesus has now been revealed. So Jesus starts preaching. And he does this one chapter later in the book of Matthew. And it's the exact same message John the Baptist preached. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But those are just words. Those are just words. And so when the kingdom of heaven comes, it doesn't come with just words. It comes with words and power. Jesus is now preaching, but he's preaching with power. And this is in the very same chapter, Matthew chapter 4. And here's what he says. And Jesus went about all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues. We don't have a problem with that. We can teach. We can do seminars and stuff of that nature. Preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. Okay, I guess we could kind of do that. But then we're going to take the gospel of the kingdom and we're going to show them what it's like. We're going to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases among the people. Okay, okay. But that was, that was just Jesus. Yeah, but Jesus delegated his authority to his disciples. If they hated the master, they'll hate the servants of the master. What they see the master do is what you're going to be doing. I'm sending you out in groups of uh, 12 first, and I'm going to send you out in a group of 70 as my interns to do the things that I have been doing, and I'm going to give you temporarily what you're going to receive permanently in Acts chapter 2. So now we have the message of the disciples who were also preaching with power. Same power Jesus had. We find this in Matthew 10 when he sends them out. Here is Jesus's command for them. And as you go, preach. Well, can we choose our own message? No. There's just one message I want you to preach. Can't we preach about you know, how God can help you overcome your feelings of insecurity and self-doubt. I mean, that's important. We preach about that today. Can't we preach that? No. One message, same message you heard from me. Preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And do what I did. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Every bit of this is exemplified in the Acts account. Freely you received, freely given. It's been given to you as a gift, now dispense it as a gift. Silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, rise and walk. All the book of Acts is, is an account of Jesus giving a command to his disciples and them obeying it. It's a picture of the kingdom of God being fulfilled in their very eyes. And it is a declaration of war against the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Our problem is, quite honestly, that we have so apostatized our personal living that we have become so accustomed to living in lukewarmness into the Laodicea. We're not too hot. We're not bad as we used to be. We're kind of in the middle so that the people I used to hang with 
won't be angry at me, but the real spiritual people, I, I, I'm okay with them too. I'm just going to adopt a religion rather than be infused by this power. If you think about the kingdom of God, it begins and ends the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. First two verses, of course, deal with, you know, Theopolis, the one who the letter's written to, and it talks about the account of Jesus, that he was with them through the Holy Spirit, gave him certain commands, and we get to verse 3, and it says, to whom he, Jesus, presented himself, alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. He has died on the cross, he's been raised from the dead, he's presenting himself alive to his disciples, and what does he do during those 40 days? He preaches and teaches to them, teaches them things pertaining to the kingdom. Come on, Lord, can't you, can't you get this? What is this kingdom? I mean, they didn't know. A couple verses later, Lord, is it now you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? No, you're thinking earthly kingdom. The last verse in the book of Acts the last verse is a summary verse about Paul when he's in Rome before he was executed. It says, Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him. And what did he do during that time? He preached the kingdom of God. Really? Beginning and end. It's all about the kingdom. It's all about the fact we have a king. We're servants to the king. We're doulasses. We're bond slaves to the servant, it be, to, to the king. It begins about the kingdom and it ends with the kingdom. And yet we are clueless when it even comes to what the kingdom is all about. So let me give you a two-minute summary. The kingdom is wherever the king is present if you want a simple definition of that. When Jesus is acknowledged and when he is served as king, his kingdom is evident. His kingdom is not of this world, but his kingdom exists in this world. That's what Jesus said. You know, are you a king to Pilate? Uh, oh, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my servants would come and try to rescue their king from the hands of the enemy. But they're not because my kingdom is not of this world. Well, where is his kingdom? His kingdom's in you. His kingdom resides around you when you go into lost people, to school or work or in your family. That you serve a king. You serve a mighty king, the Lord Jesus, who has empowered you with himself in the person of the Holy Spirit to do anything, anything. It's right now a spiritual kingdom, but this kingdom has visible manifestations, tangible manifestations. You can tell someone who's in a kingdom. Why? Or read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Those three chapters are basically Jesus describing life in the kingdom. You have heard it said that um, you shall not commit murder. I say unto you, if you're in the kingdom, don't even be angry. Oh, I noticed that about people. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. I say, do not even look at a woman lustfully, because then you've already committed adultery. In this kingdom, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom in which we live, we are judged and we are condemned by our actions. In God's kingdom, which is here, he takes it one step deeper. It's not about the overt act of murder. I've never murdered my wife, but I've thought about it every night. Guilty. 
I've never actually consummated an adulterous relationship with someone who's not my spouse, but I've thought about it a lot, guilty. And so he takes the kingdom of God and makes it far more personal. And we find this kingdom is both present with us right now and also has a future tense. I, wanna, I want you to look at this verse in 1 Corinthians 15. And I never saw this in this way until this week. Here's the future kingdom. When Jesus defeats Satan, when Jesus crushes Satan, when Satan is done away with and every knee bows to his lordship, then his kingdom comes in full fruition and the war is over. And look what it says in 1 Corinthians, talking about the end times. It says, and then comes the end. When is the end? When he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father. Lord, you have entrusted me with your kingdom. I have defeated the usurper, Satan, and I am now presenting to you the kingdom entrusted to me and all the members of the kingdom, you and I, to him. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority, that is a euphemism for the Satan's realm, demonic realm, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that Satan has against us is death. And when all that is done, what's next? There's a new heaven and a new earth where Jesus rules supreme. And you and I have an opportunity to rule and reign with him when the battle is over. Until that happens, here's the hard part. We live in this world controlled by Satan. Now, when I say that, um, most people go, no, it's not really controlled by Satan. I mean, it's not, you're making it too black and white. So does God. It's incredibly black and white. There's this kingdom and that kingdom. There's a tree and good fruit and a tree and bad fruit. Fruit. There is walking in the light or walking in the darkness. It doesn't say you can walk in between those two. It is either hot or cold, alive or dead. You're either submissive or you're rebellious. I mean, it's one way or the other with God. You either belong to him or you don't. You don't kind of belong to him. It's two kingdoms here, but that was not God's original intention. If you remember in the Garden of Eden, God basically set up this wonderful, idyllic life for Adam and Eve. And he basically said that I've created this earth. What I want you to do is I want you to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. And I will give you everything that you need. You have immense knowledge. You, you name every animal, every bug, every insect that's there. I've created for you a helpmeet, and the two of you just don't eat from this particular uh, tree in the garden. And Satan came, tempted them, and they fell. And when they did, God pushed them out of what he prepared for them and pushed them out into this domain that is defined by sin and the consequences of sin. The first thing Adam and Eve realized when they sinned was something was wrong, that I didn't know what naked was, but now I do. My innocence is now gone. So they tried to, to cover their own nakedness and their shame by sewing together fig leaves. That's man-made religion, trying to somehow do something to appease God. And they hid from their father as he walked through the garden in the cool of the day. Do you remember? 
So this is where we're at right now. We're at a kingdom that has been given by us to Satan. This is his world and his kingdom. And just so that you'll know that's true, I'm just going to run through a couple verses here. 1 John 5 19 says, we know that we are of God because we're in a different kingdom, but the whole world, everybody else, lies under the sway of Satan, under the sway of the evil. We are of God, but everybody else in the world that we live is not. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Why are they perishing? Because the God of this age... Satan has blinded their minds so they don't believe. So we have a gospel. Satan is trying to blind their minds. There's two kingdoms that are at war here. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. And you he made alive, though you were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, living like this world, which is dominated by the prince of the power of the air. And so you'll know this is not a physical prince, it's a spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, his kingdom. Luke 4, 6, this is the temptation. Jesus is shown by Satan, all the kingdoms of all the world and all their glory. And Satan says to Jesus, all this authority I will give to you. Satan now. And their glory, for it has been delivered to me by you and I. And I give it to whomever I wish. Not one time did Jesus say, no, it's not yours. It doesn't belong to you. That's a bogus claim. Doesn't at all. He just refuses to bow to Satan. Matthew 12. I love this one. They're trying to tell Jesus that he commits these incredible acts of power by the power of Satan. And so Jesus makes a statement that everybody agrees with. Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself will not stand. Application. If Satan cast out Satan, which is what you're accusing me of doing, he is divided against himself, Note this phrase, how then will his kingdom stand? Because he does have a kingdom and there's a war going on. And Christ's job is to destroy Satan's kingdom. And he does that through the power invested in you and I. Now, in the book of Revelation, he does send an angel by, you know, hovering in mid-heaven, I don't know, 100 feet off the ground, 200 feet off the ground with these big bullhorns maybe proclaiming, give glory to God, it's only going to get worse. I mean, he could evangelize the world that way, but he chose not to. At some point he will, but he chose not to. Instead, he gave everything in the Godhead to live in you. And most of us have squandered it on stuff that doesn't matter. Here's what Jesus said, or here's what John said, the purpose of Jesus' coming is, not to save you and me. We just happen to be a blessing. He who sits, sins is of the devil, for the devil is sinned from the beginning. Therefore, since the devil is sinned from the beginning, and those who sin are from him, the purpose of the Son of God was manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil. He might destroy the kingdom in which the devil resides. 
And in Colossians, where it's talking about the cross of Christ, here's what he says. Jesus, having disarmed principalities and powers. Again, that's Paul's way of saying the demonic realm. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And if you look at the verse before that, it is the cross. He defeated Satan through the cross and redeemed you and I through that cross and infilled us with the Holy Spirit to be able to do his will and his bidding. All right. All right, Steve, I'll bite. <clears throat> okay, let's assume what you're saying is true. Uh, what do I do? I mean, how do I, how, how does this two kingdom thing work? Well, let me show you how prevalent it is. The disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. Something as simple as that, pray. Lord, teach us how to pray. We didn't ask you to teach us how to preach or sing or, you know, do multimedia. Teach us how to pray. Okay, let's acknowledge God first for who he is. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. You are God, you are sovereign, you are king. What do we do next? You recognize there's war. The goal is your kingdom come, not Satan's kingdom. Your kingdom come. Well, what is that kingdom like? It's really simple. It's your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Not Satan's will, not fallen people's will. When God's kingdom comes, his will is done. Like it is in heaven, it will also be on earth. Then there's our personal request. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, which is an expression of that sanctification aspect of our salvation. Do not lead us into temptation. I don't. Satan does. But I will deliver you not from the things that come from Satan, but from Satan himself. I will deliver you from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, not Satan's and the power that comes with that kingdom, and the glory forever and ever and ever, amen, which means so be it or let it be so. Every time you pray that prayer, when Jesus basically gave the disciples that prayer as a model prayer, every time those words utter from your lips, it is a declaration of war against Satan's kingdom because my king's kingdom is coming and his will will be done on earth, not around you, Satan. You'll be bound on earth just like it is in heaven. And I am an emissary of his kingdom. He gave us his power, granted us by the Holy Spirit who now lives in us. As a matter of fact, if you think about his kingdom, don't get this military idea of horses and you know, swords and shields and all that kind of stuff, like Lord of the Rings or something. The fact is, when you think about his kingdom, listen to how Jesus describes what his purpose was on earth. And he does this in Luke chapter four. He goes to his hometown. He takes out the scroll of Isaiah. He opens it up. He finds the exact place he wants to read. Then he reads it. And then he turns around and says, today, what I just read, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And notice what he said here. He was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, talking about himself. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. By the way, the Spirit of the Lord is in you, in you, because he has anointed me 
to preach the gospel to the poor. That's spiritual. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, those that are mourning because of their sin and because of what Satan has done in their life and maybe the consequences of their own choices. That is spiritual. To proclaim liberty to the captives. This does not mean that you stand at a prison gate to guys that are in there for you know, rape and murder and say, hey, I wish you guys were free. It's captives. Those are under the bondage of Satan. Say, uh, um, sold as a slave to sin like you were. That's spiritual. And recovery of sight to the blind so they can see the gospel and who they are. To set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Exactly the same things we're to do. Exactly the same things they did in the book of Acts. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. There's probably this dramatic pause. All the eyes are looking upon him. How is he going to exemplify this? How is he going to give us application from that? And he simply said this, today, what I just read to you is fulfilled in your hearing. In your hearing. So we are going to be looking at the book of Acts. And this is just an introduction Book of Acts is an account of the early church proclaiming the kingdom of God. I mean, they're faithful. They proclaim God does incredible things. He authenticated their message. And he authenticated the kingdom by showing people, yes, there is something bigger than just religion here. They performed incredible signs, which are their exact same signs that he himself was doing on earth that he has given his church the power to do the same. We don't do it because we don't believe. We don't do it because we've convinced ourselves because we don't want the problem to be us that we don't do this. I mean, look, why would God move in an incredible way in the lives of believers who are a seven when at some point in time they used to be a 10, who are living at 70% of what they first lived, maybe when they first got saved. We're not growing in our faith. We're stagnated in our faith. We're not even closer to him or as close to him as we have been in the past. And yet we expect God to move like we are people living in his kingdom, experiences the kingdom. Why would he do that? Because if he did, it would affirm our apathy. I don't need to get any more spiritual than I am now. Look what he has done rather than having this desire like Paul had that all of life is rubbish and dung except for knowing the surpassing greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly, not what I've already done, but beyond what I can even imagine, what I can think by the power that lives, do you remember the rest of that verse? In the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations. He wants to move in our lives. Once we view this as a declaration of war on Satan as a kingdom, and you and I have been called to be soldiers, we are blessed to be soldiers. We've been given spiritual armor, and that armor is so protective that the shield of faith in him extinguishes every single fiery dart the enemy can shoot at you. Well, if I do that, uh, the enemy will get me. That's not what the scripture says. It says that shield of faith, of course, hopefully your faith is not the size of a tea coaster. You know, maybe it's 
the size of faith it should be in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can defeat everything. We're on the winning side. As a matter of fact, the battle's already won. This is just a mop-up operation. He's already defeated Satan. And all that is necessary for us to live victoriously in Christ is faith. Faith in him, faith in his word, and most importantly, a willingness to join the fight. A willingness to get involved in the battle. Do you remember the verse I quoted a while ago that said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Do you remember? That's a promise. If you're not suffering persecution, it means probably you're not living godly in Christ, at least to the point that is bothering the darkness. The darkness doesn't even care about you because maybe your light is as dim as mine. But it's the desire part. When you have a desire to surrender all to him, then you will be infused with the power from God on high. And no matter what Satan throws at you, it is nothing compared to what God has. Because Satan was created by God. He's not coexistent and co-eternal with God. I want you to keep this in mind as we begin looking at this book. And we're going to look at it in a way that we never have before. And if you will understand, it is a declaration of war between the rightful heir and the usurper of the promised land. This world, it's a parallel uh, in the book of Joshua. It'll literally change your life. And so all I wanted to do today, all I wanted to do today is hopefully get you ready for what we're going to be looking at in the weeks and months to come as we scour through the Acts of the Apostle, asking him, really the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles, asking him to show us how to live victoriously in Christ Jesus. And I hope that you will join me. Amen? Let me pray.